Hello and welcome to episode three of Women's Strength Collective, the podcast. I'm your host, Shay Zeru, and each episode we'll be chatting about a topic related to women's lifting, health and life. This week, I was lucky enough to be chatting to Emma Hall, who is a registered psychologist who specializes in sports psychology specifically. We all know how much of an impact psychology has on our performance come game day, which is why this topic was one of the first on my list to cover. Emma owns Vashti Performance, which is based out of Melbourne, and today she joins me to talk about COVID and how we should manage our exercise and goals during this time, negative self-talk and what to do about it, sports-related anxiety, and we rounded out by chatting how, as a coach, we should be working with our clients on sports psychology-related matters. I loved recording this episode and took a lot of information nuggets away from it, especially in my role as a coach. There have been a handful of times where I've felt a little helpless with my clients and after chatting to Emma, I feel like if I were in that scenario again, I'd have a bit of a game plan this time. I'm absolutely hoping that you guys feel the same after listening to this episode and if you do, please make sure to rate and give us a review. It helps other people find us but also lets me know if the information I'm putting out through Women's Strength Collective is helping you. Thank you for joining us regardless and listen on for episode three with Emma Hall. Welcome, Emma, to Women's Strength Collective, the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I feel like we have a lot of ground to cover in this episode, but to get started, if you just want to give yourself a bit of an intro, a bit about your background in sporting and also about your work that you did at the AIS too, I'm very interested in that. Sure. Um, I've always been pretty heavily involved in sport. I grew up in a pretty sporting family. We used to go and watch sport a lot. Um, I was always an athlete in one form or another. Primarily through my school years, uh, I was involved most heavily in uh, swimming and athletics. And then as I sort of moved through uni, I went into volleyball as well. Um, I don't do anything – well, I shouldn't say that. I do – aerial arts competitively now (laughs) Um, but I don't do any sort of team sports competitively anymore but I've moved across sort of more to the fitness side of things and I'm very active in that space. Um, I guess where my interest in sports psychology came from I was always fascinated by human behavior I find humans very interesting creatures and of course the love of the sport and exercise side. Uh, I did a bit of investigation around what areas of psychology there were and I came across this amazing area called sports psychology. So that kind of melds both of those things together. And also, I guess, more in recent times, um, we've come to see that the principles of sports psychology and and high performance are applicable to any person in any pursuit. So it's it's actually a really broad area um, we tend to refer to as performance psychology now sort of to capture everyone. So in that regard, I uh, went on and, and studied a master's at Vic Uni and then got the opportunity to go and work at the AIS in Canberra for a couple of years. So that was all the way back in 2003, <laughs> many moons ago. I was up there for two years working in the sports psychology department and sort of cutting my teeth essentially on the practical yeah. side of the, the work. I got to work in a lot of Olympic preparation, which was fantastic for the 2004 awesome. Olympics. Um, so it was great. Um, primarily... I was assigned a couple of, of main teams, which was um, netball and basketball, but then I worked uh, sort of in bits and pieces with with other sports such as athletics, volleyball, some of the Paralympic sports as well here and there. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so I got, yeah, pretty good exposure to a lot of those things. Uh, and that was sort of working individually with athletes on sports-related issues but just also general well-being and life issues, of course. Yeah. Uh, and then also doing a lot of group workshops for performance-related um, strategies and that kind of thing. 
That's awesome. When you just yeah. spoke about then working with people about their general well-being as well as their performance, how much of an effect does general well-being have on that performance aspect of everything? Oh, it's it's huge. Um, anyone who's involved in any kind of sport or exercise pursuit, first and foremost, they're a human. We don't live in a vacuum. <laughs> so our day-to-day life and how we're coping with the demands of that has a massive impact. I think we've all been in, a, in situations where we've had a bit of a down day or a bit of a down period and we, we don't necess- necessarily feel motivated to go and do our training. And that, of course, you know, every now and then, totally fine. We, we have to be kind to ourselves. But if it becomes more of a pattern, that can obviously disrupt a lot of things. So, yeah, they're, they're absolutely... Uh, linked you can't separate them (laughs) yeah and I think especially now as well with all that is going on people are really struggling with that motivation side of things because of the impacts everything has had on their their life at the moment I myself am really struggling with motivation to get in and do my usual training that I usually wouldn't really think twice about and I'm doing technically less because the gym is actually closed at the moment However, that motivation has become so low. So it's just interesting to hear you talk about the impacts of that general life and then how it actually impacts the sports side of things too. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously great um, living example that we're in at the moment about completely our routines being thrown out the window and having to be more creative in how we actually get our stuff done and trying to maintain our motivation in different ways. It's yeah. definitely a challenge. Are you, what are you suggesting to people at the moment who are struggling with that motivation when it comes to training or moving in general in a different way that they're accustomed to? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because I'm finding as I talk to people about their motivation, it's gone one way or the other. For some people, they're super motivated and they're like, I've got so much more time. Yes, I'm having to do it mostly from home, but I've, I've got myself some equipment or I've um, been creative and using things around the house. Uh, and then other people are saying, I'm really struggling. Uh, I just can't bring myself to actually do my training. Yep. You know, I don't have the right equipment and so on. So I think definitely continuing with some kind of goal setting is really important so that you have a plan each week and then each day that you're going to do some some training or just moving in general, you know, getting out for a walk, you have that in your schedule as if it was a meeting so that you're committed to it. I think being accountable, you know, uh, linking up with, Uh, if you have a trainer uh, or one of your friends or family and just keeping each other accountable to doing those things is really important. Um, But I think not letting, not having the right equipment be an excuse because there's so many ways you can use household objects to actually get some movement in. And it may not be the same as your usual training, but it doesn't matter. As long as you're getting something done, you know, you're maintaining a good amount of your fitness. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. Because we all know that physical movement obviously has a big role in our own mental health as well, especially if you are used to training, you know, X amount of hours and then going to a situation like this and say not doing it because you don't have the right equipment. That obviously plays a huge role in our mental health and how we're feeling. I do find that is a common uh, thing that has been popping up with my clients as well. Obviously, we do a lot of barbell training and a lot of people at the moment don't have access to that barbell or the weights that they're usually lifting when it comes to the gym. And so that has been a really common conversation with my clients about motivation, really 
setting some new goals that aren't necessarily so towards that barbell side of things and kind of bringing it back to, you know, maybe addressing some weaknesses, doing some single-sided type of exercise and yeah, even just getting out and going for a walk. I don't think I've seen so many people walking. Yeah, that's right. And it's a great opportunity, um, as you've said there, to address um, some weaknesses or some areas you don't normally have a lot of time to focus on. Um, Myself, I struggle with my flexibility and I don't always have a lot of time to work on that. So I'm using this time to actually engage in a planned flexibility program, yeah, which is a great area of focus because it's really challenging for me and I'm finding that sort of motivation just as as time to work on something else. So there can be good rewards at this time. You've just got to kind of set your mind to doing something that can motivate you day by day. Yeah. And I think as well, drawing the line, like as you said, putting it in as a meeting and making sure that you're kind of flipping the switch a little bit, because obviously at the moment, everyone is working from home and there's the kitchen, there's your workspace, there's your bedroom, everything in one space. And one thing that has really helped me is when I need to actually flip the switch is going out, going for a walk, coming back in and feeling refreshed and ready to start doing some exercise or a different task and just kind of drawing the line a little bit as well and creating a different space in my mind, although that space is everything. Yeah, look, absolutely. And even something as simple as the clothes that you're wearing can Mm. help with that mindset shift. So while you're doing your working from home, um, you know, being in just your casual clothes, but maybe trying not necessarily to just be in your active wear all day. Yeah. If if that's not your normal sort of wear, then when you change into that gym gear, that's your mindset switch. Now I'm, I'm ready to do my walk, ready to do my workout, whatever that is. So things like that can actually really help as well. Yeah. When you were working at the AAS and working with these athletes, what were some of the most common things that you would have to address with these people? What were the things that were kind of occurring a lot? Um, A lot of the athletes at the AAS are actually in the developmental age group. So meaning that they're sort of in their mid to late teens Um, and some of the sports even earlier. So swimming and and gymnastics, for example, we're looking at sort of 12 and 13 year olds who who are coming in and, and sometimes living on site residentially. Some of them still live with their families and come in just for training. So for them, it was quite a lot uh, about the broader things like managing their time um, Mm -hmm. with their studies alongside their training load and sort of being able to to manage both of of those things. Interestingly, you might think a lot of athletes at that elite level are very confident, but often they're not. (laughs) Often they have massive self-doubt and they go up and down Uh, you know, repeatedly, there's a lot of expectations on them, both from themselves and their coaching staff and families and so on. Uh, And that's, sorry, keeping it real in the background with my dog barking. (laughs) Good old working from home. (laughs) Um, So your confidence is a massive one because in order to be able to perform at your best, you have to have that level of confidence and back yourself. I personally have struggled with, but also a lot of my clients struggle with, and I'm not going to lie, this episode is a little bit of a selfish episode as a coaching (laughs) from a coaching perspective because there have been some times when my clients are heading to the platform and their confidence is so low and I've just felt so helpless as, as a coach to get them up to that level where they can walk out into confidence onto the platform. And it is so hard to find some tools that actually get them to that point because it does feel like such an individual thing. 
Personally, yeah. I have had many times where I've felt you know, really lack of confidence before I walk out onto the platform. And there isn't a whole lot that anyone can really say. It feels like such an intrinsic oh, thing. It is. Yeah, absolutely. You're the only person at that point who can do mm. anything about that. Definitely. So what are some tools in that situation that you would say from a coaching perspective, I imagine they would have to be implemented way before someone does hit the platform. How do you even recognize that someone is lacking that confidence to then start thinking about some strategies to bring that confidence up before it comes to game day and they need to perform? Yeah, look, absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head by saying that these things have to be worked on early. Yeah. Um, any of the strategies in, in sports psychology, um, you know, particularly around the mindset, uh, unfortunately they're not a magic bullet. So they do take, you know, months of work beforehand. It's just like learning a new physical skill. You've got to train it so that it's there for you on, on game day, so to speak. A lot of times you can get a bit of an insight into someone's sort of level of confidence by the way that they talk in their training sessions. If you're noticing any sort of self-deprecating language or negative statements, particularly when they don't have a great session. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they, they are struggling one day and if they're very negative and down, that's that's a pretty good sign that there are some there's some work there to be done. Um, also in their body language, you know, if they're going, say, for a new PB in the gym and they don't quite get there, if they sort of walk away with their head down, that's not a great sign. If they sort of walk away and go, okay, that's okay, I'm going to come back and I'm going to try again tomorrow, you know, that's a different kettle of fish, essentially. Yeah. So it, it comes down to the way they're talking to themselves internally, their, their internal dialogue. And so in order to change that, that's why it takes a bit of work over over the months prior, um, you sort of work on some strategies for them to firstly become more aware of how it affects them when they're, they're talking to themselves in a negative way and then what to do about it. Once they can identify when it's happening, you can actually shift it to being something more motivating so that then when they get to game day as a coach, you can have built cues in uh, to just be able to remind them, hey, remember that work we did on this or remember your, your keywords that remind you of the mindset you want to be in right now, go back to those. So it's, that's part of it. And then also establishing a really good routine to get them to the line on, on game day um, so that they're feeling physically and mentally at peak. And, and where they want to be every single time they step up to compete. So it's establishing a routine that they practice in their training days. So it's basically familiar and they feel confident about what they're doing. They feel like they've been there a thousand times before and that they've got this. That's kind of the, I guess, the essence of it. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I hear so much and I do try speak to my clients about a lot is the use of the word heavy when it comes to barbell training. And again, another situation that has applies to me because I went through this and really changed that self-talk. But as soon as I used to let the word heavy come out of my mouth, it was such a flow on effect of negativity. And I really did a lot of work to try and make sure I started to think about what's next after I say that word, what can come after that word, not necessarily saying to myself, don't say it, but if it does come out and I do feel that way, making sure I have the next steps that are actually more to the positive side of things, because we all know as soon as we start talking incredibly negatively about our session or using words such as heavy and associating them with negativity, it has such a flow on effect to how that session goes. Yeah, it's such a quick spiral downwards if you let it happen. And that's why that self-awareness is so important as a foundation to, to changing the way that you speak to yourself and the way that you think. 
um, because a lot of it just flies under the radar and we don't notice the way that we're talking to ourselves and that undermines us straight away. And, and often that's why people are like, why, why did I just um, have a massive, you know, dip in performance there I don't understand? And it's if you kind of go back and analyse it, you can often often find a point at which it started and identify the, the thoughts that went along with it and then, bam, you know, if you don't, recognize that early and get on it unfortunately yeah can end in a as you say a very negative performance and and then you remember that and you can Mm. sometimes carry that forward to your next training session and and so on and so on and that's what we want to prevent of course yeah so if someone is constantly having that negative self-talk what are some tools that you would suggest or what are some cues that you would suggest them to start to implement so when it does come to game day they are prepared yeah, for sure. So some really easy things to do. Your your brain will essentially play a video related to what you're saying to yourself. So if you say to yourself, don't do something, your brain will actually see you doing that thing. <laughs> so you want to make sure that all the things you're saying to yourself are things you want to do. Okay. So for example, with um, say a hundred meter sprinter, if they say if they've had a few false starts recently and they step up to the line and they say, Don't have a false start their brain is seeing a false start. (laughs) It's more likely that then that will happen. If they say to themselves, strong start, they're more likely to be in that right mindset. So firstly, you want to identify what are the key things for you in your performance that you need to nail. So you've always got specific technical cues. You can use some of those to to form some keywords or key phrases, the really important technical parts of your your performance. You can also use some mood-related words if you find that um, it's a general feeling that you need to have. You can also use some words such as confident, strong, ready, um, you know, anything that really speaks to you. It's, It's quite an individual thing. And then obviously, if you're working with a coach, making sure that you're both on the same page with those so that your coach can remind you of those particular phrases is a really good way to do it too. And as a coach, when someone does rock up on game day and say it isn't something we haven't been able to identify beforehand, what are we looking for on the day? And is there absolutely anything we can do if we identify that person is in a negative state of mind to bring them out of it? Yeah, for sure. There's a couple of things. You want to essentially take them back to a session where they felt they were really nailing it. So if you have the opportunity to take them aside somewhere quiet and away from the other competitors, hopefully that's that's a possibility. Even just getting them to shut their eyes and ask them to think back to the last session they had where they just felt they did everything beautifully, they felt really strong and capable and so on. And just getting them to talk you through that situation, how it felt, what they did, why was it so good, and trying to get their head back into that space and bring those feelings into the current situation. So it's kind of just regrounding them with a time when they did feel that they were in that really good uh, mindset and, and physically a good space. So you're trying to reconnect them with that. Um, and then you've got more chance for them to actually recreate something like that on the day. So it's yeah. probably the easiest strategy I guess if you haven't been able to do any work on that before and often when people do have these performances and they do start to recognize that you know maybe they are using that kind of negative self-talk instead of doing something that is going to positively impact their performance where would you suggest they start after they have that performance and they have recognized it Uh, it depends which way you work best um, essentially so some people prefer to 
try to do the work themselves with some, um, as you say, self-help materials, websites, books, et cetera, that's totally fine. There are some good good ones out there. Even if you just literally Google thought management or self-talk, one of those, you, you'll get quite a few websites up with materials and just general guidelines about how to address that. If you're working towards something that's really important to you and you notice that it's quite a significant issue, then for sure reaching out to a professional would be a great idea. You may only need to see them a couple of times just to establish some work um, because most of the work, of course, is done outside of those sessions. It's just establishing those foundations and the strategies and then you take them away and work with them. So it doesn't mean that you, you know, have to go to weekly sessions for the next goodness knows how long. You might just need a couple of base sort of educational sessions almost to get those strategies up. So in that way, they can be targeted to you, which, as I say, if you're working towards something that's really important to you as a goal, is probably a quicker and more effective way because they're they're targeted individually. But if it's just kind of a more general thing that you're wanting to work on, then for sure the self-help tools um, are out there as well. There's some great great stuff available too. So, um, But there's, there's no shortage of, of really effective strategies and tools out there so whatever you're finding to be a challenge there'll be something that can target it yeah and I guess if you're not really sure why say that consistency isn't there then that's that's probably a good idea to to speak to someone about it because they can actually help profile your performance and identify what areas are going to be most useful for you but yeah if you've got a clear idea already of what's going on then obviously you can sort of do some self-research and that kind of thing. Yeah. So we've spoken a lot about negative self-talk. What are some other common factors that you see in professional athletes or athletes in general that do affect their performance? Yeah, for sure. So anxiety, pre-competition anxiety is another massive one. Um, That's one that I definitely suffered from. I was almost to the point of um, being sick before some of my races at times just because I was so wound up. Um, And that's one we see a lot, particularly in individual sports, but sometimes in team sports as well. So working on, again, preparation for that competition and some strategies to change your activation level and and sort of bring bring yourself back from the brink and, and channel that anxiety in a useful way is really important there. Also, injury management and coming back from injury is a really big one too. So particularly for major or chronic injuries that can obviously threaten someone's whole identity if if their sport is a major part of themselves and a major part of their routine so we need to look at ways to maintain that through the injury rehab period and also look at mentally staying in touch with their sport and staying I guess yeah not losing the strategic side of it and the mindset side it's kind of it's a little bit like the situation we're in now with COVID in terms of there are other things you can use that time to work on so if you're injured you can work on your mental skills, for example. If you haven't really done much of that before, great opportunity to bring those up to speed so that when you get back physically, you've got that advantage. Um, yeah. So things like that. Identity is such a big part when it comes to sport. Do you think there is a level where that does get unhealthy? There can be, absolutely. I think with anything, it can get to that level with, with any interest or activity that you're involved in, it can get to the point where it's unhealthy. So I think it's trying to keep a balance in terms of making sure there are other parts of the self that you're also taking care of. So you're not funneling absolutely every waking minute into one activity. So don't get me wrong, it's great to be focused and to put a lot of effort into your chosen um, activity or sport. But there needs to be other things in your life as well to protect against 
those issues. So, for example, um, at the AIS and obviously in all the major sporting clubs, uh, athletes are not allowed only to do their training in their sport. They must either be engaged in some studies or be employed in a separate workplace in addition to their training. So it's making sure that they have um, some different spheres of the self. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. To, to on, rather than having a completely sole focus. Yeah. Yeah, that is so good to hear that they are implementing things like that at the AAS because I do think it plays a huge role, especially in burnout as well. If we are funneling yeah. all that energy into one aspect, it yeah. obviously there's a higher chance of us getting to a point and going, wow, I am tired and my motivation is low because I've put absolutely yeah. everything in here. What are some signs that you guys look for when it comes to that kind of unhealthy uh, link to the identity and how can we look for that as coaches? Yeah, I guess it's just, you know, as a coach, you're in a great position, hopefully to, to get to know your athletes quite well. So it's important not just to be talking to them 100% of the time about the particular sport that you're involved in, but try to talk to them as well about what else is in their life, you know, their family, their friends, other interests, those kind of things. And that way you can kind of get a a bit of a better read on how much of a focus they're bringing to this one activity versus having a bit more of a balance. So, yeah, I think you're in a really good position for that. Same with sort of allied uh, staff who support uh, sports people as well. They often, you know, in those situations where maybe the athlete's guard is down a little bit because maybe they're away from the coaching staff, they, they will often sort of drop little comments maybe that will give a bit of an insight into there maybe being, you know, some concerns there and that, that can be followed up. So just listening to what they're saying and really trying to trying to get a good read on how they're spending their time, where their focus is, and, and hopefully spreading that across a few different areas. Yeah. And what does burnout look, what does it look like? And if someone has or is in a period of burnout, how do we get out of that? Yes, good question. (laughs) So burnout's unfortunately really common. It can happen at all levels of the sport, not just at the elite elite side. Um, We often see sort of people at, uh, you know, club level who just have a really strong focus on their sport, which is needed for them to do well. That's fantastic. But there's obviously a bit of a dark side to that as well that can lead to things like burnout. Essentially, it's uh, a response to chronic ongoing physical and mental demands without getting adequate rest and recovery, so in a nutshell. In terms of what to look for, and this, I guess, is something that coaching and support staff can be on the lookout for, family, partners, etc., can also... Uh, get a sense of as well as the athletes themselves understanding what what to be on the lookout for. So you often get a, a sustained plateau in performance or conditioning level. So you're not getting any gains over a significant period of time, even though you're putting in the work. So that's a key one and that can obviously lead to frustration. There's some physiological signs. So your resting heart rate, um, it's always a good idea for athletes to keep a record of, of their heart rate day to day. So when they first wake up, for example, just measuring that for a minute or so and noting it down in the training journal. If that resting heart rate goes up significantly over a period of time, that can be one sign that their body's under significant stress if it's gone up for no reason. Um, obviously, if they've been sick or something like that, 
there's something you can attribute it to, but if there's no real reason for it, that can be another signal. Their sleep patterns are changing, they're struggling to sleep or their appetite is changing. That's also another potential. Any trouble concentrating, trouble with memory, feelings of withdrawing away from people that they would normally want to spend time with uh, and just feeling generally a bit moody and irritable are the really common signs of that as well. Not having that, that enjoyment, as you kind of touched on before, in what you're doing, just feeling like you're going through the motions, you're on a treadmill, you're just not enjoying it and, and getting those benefits that you're used to. Yeah. Um, they're all, you know, they're not symptoms that are purely exclusive to burnout, but if there's a number of those all together, yeah, that definitely sort of be a flag to just check that out. Yeah, I think a good indication as well that most people in powerlifting would struggle with is that lack of enjoyment. Are you looking forward to it? Are you dreading it? Yeah, kind of really taking that as a sign as well that maybe something needs to change. So when someone is in that situation, what are some suggestions you have to implement into either training or into life? So there, there's some, um, yeah, targeted strategies for training as well as some more general ones, of course. You've got to remember that more is not always better. So a lot of people think, oh, the more sessions I do, the stronger I'll get, the better I'll be. Not always the case. You have to train smart. So it's really about, you know, working with your coach to identify a training schedule that's realistic and that is going to work towards the goals that you have without being overbearing and and just impossible to maintain. You've got to look obviously long-term. Is this sustainable for me to work on week by week and, and fit in all of the other parts of my life that are important to me? So balancing those things, making sure that you have enough rest and recovery in your weekly schedule as well. So a lot of people like to be active every day and that's great, but making sure that if you're doing that, you're not doing the really hard training every single day, giving yourself, you know, at least a day to do some other kind of activity like going for a walk or, you know, when we can, going for a swim. Um, So active recovery is totally fine, but just not doing the really targeted program work every single day because that's when you get that feeling of just being on the treadmill. You need to give your mind and your body a break from that stuff as well. Making sure that you're keeping a general training journal but including those things such as the quality of your sleep, so roughly how many hours you're getting and how you feel when you wake up in the morning, your energy levels, um, the heart rate like I mentioned before, your resting heart rate when you first wake up in the morning, Uh, And also just writing down your general mood for that day. Like, how were you feeling? How did you feel before you went to your training session? Were you Mm. motivated? Were you feeling flat? So it's kind of just self-monitoring across a number of those areas. And if you notice a sustained change in, in a negative direction in any of those things, then that's a good sign that maybe something needs to change. Perhaps you do need to take a week off and, and just give yourself literally a break because it's both the physical and the mental demands that that lead to that burnout state. So we've got to look at both sides of that. Yeah. I think as a coach as well, at the moment, a lot of my clients have been struggling to hit the X amount of days because they are in a situation that isn't normal. And so after a few weeks, if they haven't been able to hit those days, I typically try and reduce them because it takes away that stress of having to get to those sessions. We are under stress and thinking we need to make these sessions. It is often unenjoyable because you're cramming, but also the time that you're spending there, you're thinking, I'm stressed, I'm rushed. This isn't very fun. And so as a coach, I think it's a good thing to look for is if your client is consistently not able to hit 
the amount of sessions that you had previously discussed and maybe previously were even doable. Take that as a sign to reduce those sessions and maybe just change some things up when it comes to the training, revisit some goals. Once things start to gradually move back towards where we are used to them being, um, whether that's a slightly new normal, we don't know yet, but when they do get back in the direction when we can at least, say, access our usual equipment, maybe start to be working out of home and have different, you know, maybe less demand on us from that perspective, then we can refocus and reset. Um, I think at the moment it's a case of absolutely having those slightly different goals Mm -hmm. and remembering that you're not going to lose all of your form, your fitness, your ability in this period of time. We're we're not going to be in this situation for five years, you know. (laughs) It's it's not going to be something like that where we just completely lose everything. It's more important at the moment to do what you can to maintain, you know, a, a base level of fitness and strength and there's lots that we can do to that end but also to maintain, you know, a a decent mindset and and well-being at this time is just as important. And as soon as you're able to, you know, get your training load back on point where where it was before or work back to that, you'll get back. You know, you will. It it doesn't take as long as you think. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it'll be doable. (laughs) Especially if you are doing something in the meantime. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at a huge number of professional athletes who have, had a career, walked away or retired from that career and then actually come back, you know, a year, two years later and had a great final kind of chapter on that. So it's it's definitely possible. And you're right, it's, it's important not to put too much pressure on ourselves at this time and not to get stuck on what you're losing. Mm. You know, try to focus on what you're able to do and, and keeping that base level of, of well-being and, and fitness. And, yeah, you you know, once you're able to access what you need to, it, it won't be as hard a record as you think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that has always interested me, and I'm sure this is probably more of just like your personal opinion as well, is when kids do get into sports really early and young, maybe by their parents pushing them into a sport and thinking they could make a good career out of a sport. And then obviously them training for X amount of years and then all of a sudden going, no. Nah. Is that common within kids? And how would you navigate that if your kid is showing a, a lot of interest in a sport? How would you kind of, I guess, prevent them reaching that point of, I imagine it is a bit of burnout? Yeah, it's a good question. I guess it's important initially to figure out why they're in that sport. So what it, you got to talk to them about what they enjoy about it. And are there any elements of it they don't like so much? Because there's usually both and that's totally fine. But trying to just monitor what it is about that sport that they're enjoying and just checking in with that over time to see if that's changing or if those factors are maintaining. So if it's things like the social element of the sport, you know, being with their friends, uh, if it's things like learning new skills, developing fitness, they're all really great things. And if they can sustain those sort of internal motivators over time, that's going to be really, really healthy. If it's more of the external stuff like you know, achieving particular uh, titles or, Mm. you know, beating all of their friends or (laughs) those kind of things. It's okay to have some of those, but as long as they're not sort of the only focus, it's something interesting to just sort of monitor as well. But in terms of preventing burnout, obviously making sure that they want to still be doing the sport and the work that's associated with it. So obviously the training outside of the sport, Mm. checking in, making sure they're still enjoying it 
there's going to be sessions, you know, that people will struggle. We all have struggle town <laughs> when we don't enjoy it. But for the most part, looking forward to those sessions, engaging, enjoying them and, you know, working towards their goals. But again, making sure that that particular sport is not their only hobby. Yeah. That, that they're engaging with their friends and their social group. They're engaging in their studies you know, whatever other interests they have, making sure they don't lose sight of those at the expense of just having that single focus. That's when it starts to get a little bit dangerous potentially. Yeah, yeah. kind of diversifying what they're actually doing in terms yeah. of their hobbies. And it's important to kind of, because if you've got someone who's absolutely laser focused on that sport and maybe they see themselves as wanting to potentially forge a career in it, um, something like that, it's hard to get them to look at other things because mm. they just think more is better. I've got to do this every waking hour. I've got to be focused on this. But it's explaining to them that actually having the balance and giving themselves some downtime mentally and physically from that sport is going to benefit their performance. Yeah, I think that's a bit hard to navigate too because if they see a potential career in a sport, then I imagine their parents would too. And so try, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> trying to obviously find that balance as a parent to encourage them to maybe follow this as a career, but then also make yeah. sure they're balanced enough that they don't yeah. reach that burnout stage. And I think yeah. that would be just so hard to navigate and to encourage Definitely. yet try, get them to open their mind to these other things too. Yeah. Yeah. I think it also depends whether they're getting mixed messages from the people around them. Mm. So if their coaches are encouraging them so they can see that they've got great amount of talent, if the coaches are just encouraging them to do more and more and more and just focus on this because this is where you need to be. Yeah. But the parents are sort of saying, hey, yes, focus on this, but we'd also like you to just try to get some of that balance and then, you know, maybe their friends are saying, oh, you know, you could be famous, you think about so-and-so. Um, it's difficult if they're getting those mixed messages. So I think as well for the parents to have a good dialogue with any of the people that are working with mm. their child in the sport and just figure out what page they're on. Are, are you working towards the same goals or are they getting pushed more than is, is healthy potentially? Or are you both, you know, working just to support your child or children in a, in a healthier sort of more sustainable way. Imagine obviously people could be saying lots of different things for personal gain, especially if you're a coach and you want to get yeah. that name for yourself. It'd be so tricky to navigate as both the athlete and then as the parents, yeah. as the friends. It, yeah. Oh, so many layers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> when you look at some of the people you have coached over the past years, what have been some of the trickiest situations from a psychological standpoint? One athlete I definitely remember fondly because it was a very challenging situation was uh, a very talented athlete in a team sport and she just had persistent chronic niggling injuries. So she was really talented. She had been from a young age, but she had a really smart head screwed on her shoulders. She, she had focus, but she understood the need for that balance. She had a great mindset, ability to switch on when she needed to, you know, determination, persistence, all of those things. But she just kept getting injured um, sort of in the same areas uh, regardless. And it, it was very frustrating because she did absolutely everything that she was being told to do in terms of her rehab. She stuck to it, you know, by the book, you know, was seemingly just not having any luck <laughs> getting past these injuries. So for her, it was 
working through those frustrations. So definitely frustration management, looking at what she could achieve during the times that she was um, limited in the amount of training and the type of training she could do. Uh, and also looking at wider pursuits where she could use the skills that she brought to her sport in a really productive way as well. So that was a really, yeah, really tricky one um, and over a very sort of long period of time. When someone is injured and they are getting back to their sport, I imagine there are so many things going on in their head, especially if it is so based on their ability to perform. What would you suggest for someone who has been injured and they are, you know, cleared to get back to their sport, but they're struggling to do that movement because it's in the back of their head? Yeah, that's a really common one as well. Um, Obviously, we have that fear that comes into play that we're either going to re-injure the same area, particularly if it was a major injury like an ACL or something like that. It's been a long rehab. We, we have that fear that we're going to re-injure it or that we're going to injure something else in compensation because obviously when we have injured one body part, we often rely on the opposite, you know, either the opposite side or the opposite muscles, the opposing muscles to stabilize ourselves and and so there's a lot of fear that comes back into that so you've definitely got to get your mind in the right place to be able to come back to performance it's not always as easy as just being physically recovered you actually have to sort of done the mental work as well to get yourself back to the starting line so it's making sure that again all of those wider issues are being addressed around your general health and well-being so that you're, you're definitely physically in the best place you can be. And then it's about really setting yourself those small progressive goals, so not expecting yourself to slot straight back in where you were. Even if, you know, your physicians, et cetera, are saying, look, you're fine to go back to exactly what you were doing before, from a mindset point of view, you're going to feel more confident and comfortable if you gradually build up to that. So rather than jumping straight back in, just remind yourself, hey, yeah, I can do this. Let's, let's test it out. You know, let's go a little below where we were before and sit there for a little bit. And when I feel confident about that, then I'm going to build that up. So yeah. it's, it's just about regaining that confidence. And the thought processes, again, come into that a lot as well. <laughs> of course, yeah. like what you're saying to yourself. Yep. And fear obviously plays a huge role because if we injure ourselves and we go back to doing that movement, if we have that fear in the back of our head, we're probably not committing to that movement. And then the possibility of injuring ourselves goes higher because we aren't moving in the same way and we might be trying something, we might be trying to compensate with another part of our body or another muscle. So it is very interesting to kind of have to do that mental work, even if that physical work, your box has been ticked off for that mental aspect. So that physical aspect, you do obviously have to tick the box for that mental aspect as well. And I guess it's also reminding yourself because a lot of the times through the rehab process, with a lot of injuries, you end up stronger in that particular area than before you sustained the injury. So it's reminding yourself, of that fact (laughs) and just knowing that you need to build up your confidence but that physically you may actually end up in a better place than you were before Um, so making sure that you continue with all of those strengthening exercises that you might have from your physio or you know whichever health professionals you've been working with continuing those to actually support your confidence as well so if you're thinking okay well I'm yep I'm back to my kind of usual training give or take and I'm also doing that additional strengthening work to make sure that 
I'm in that better place. So things like that can help you feel just a little bit more in control. One thing I want to touch on is comparison when it comes to that competitive level. Obviously, when we are competing against others, it is easy to slip into that comparison state of mind of, well, she's doing this and or he's doing X amount and letting that play into our mind as well. When you have an athlete who is playing the comparison game a lot, what are some tools you give them to implement so that the next time they do come to that competition, they're able to focus more on themselves as opposed to what everybody else is doing? Yeah, look, for sure. I think, you know, for something like lifting, it's very individual in terms of what works for different types of bodies. So that, that, you know, you've got the base technical side, but that has to be slightly adapted for the individual person you're working with. So reminding them of that, that they're not going to do it in exactly the same way as, you know, competitor X. (laughs) It might look slightly different. Um, It might take them a little bit longer to get to a certain point because they need to make these adaptations. Each individual is going to have certain strengths that their competitors don't have, and that could be physical or mental. And they're also going to find other areas more challenging than their competitors do. So there's going to be, you know, a bit of a mix there. So it's trying to hone in on for that particular individual, what are their key strengths? What do they do really, really well, both physically and mentally? And how can you leverage those? So they're the things you want to be focused on. And that's not talking about ignoring the challenging areas. You obviously want to be working on those too. But when it comes to sort of focusing on your own performance, you want to remind yourself about those key strengths and keep your eyes in your own bubble. (laughs) When you're in those um, individual competitive sports, like lifting, for example, where you don't need to be watching someone else at the same time as you're performing, just keep your eyes in your own bubble. Uh, Make sure that your mind is in the right place for you. Do not worry about anyone outside of your own head for that period while you're performing because it's you're the one in control of that and that's the only thing that's going to enable you to perform at your best is is being in control of your own head and your own performance as a result of that. Obviously that's a bit harder these days with things such as social media. It is obviously a little bit harder to manage because everything is so accessible these days. Do you ever recommend for people to get off social media or to unfollow people or if they're really stuck, do you recommend just getting off completely? Yeah, I think, again, it's a matter of balance. So I don't like to say don't ever do that, don't ever look at anyone else, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's important to be aware of what your competitors are doing but not to get obsessed by it so that you're working to their schedule or working towards them. You need to be working towards your own goals. So it's just about putting boundaries around it, making sure that you're not jumping on your competitor's page every day and checking out what they're doing and and those kind of things. You know, look at it every now and then, that's fine, but don't let it become a focus. And that's easier for some people than others. Um, Some people, you know, particularly in sport, can be a bit all or nothing. And they go very hard at whatever they're doing. And for those kind of personalities, um, you know, maybe it does come to a point where for the two months before a competition, you have to just go, look, this is not helping you. Mm -hmm. So let's actually abstain from looking at that stuff just for this two-month period. So it depends on the person a little bit, but but definitely too much of a focus is not helpful. You can't give yourself a good reason why it's helpful, then, you know, why are you doing it? Yeah, I think that question plays uh, a huge role in psychology and psychology-related issues. It's about asking yourself, is this helping you? If not, what can we do to start rewiring it to actually help you come meet day, come performance day? But obviously that requires um, a 
pretty big amount of self-awareness too. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's, and I think that's what kind of underlies everything is that self-awareness and trying to figure out, okay, how do I work? How do I function as a person? Well, what affects me? What, what do I thrive on? What do I struggle with? And, and what's out there and available to me to help me leverage those strengths and, and, and work on those challenging areas, you know, in parallel? Yeah, absolutely. When it comes to tools such as positive self-talk and starting to implement them into our training, do you have any other suggestions for general tools that you do find most people benefit from? Yeah, definitely. So one thing I always come back to is controlling the controllables. So sit down and think about for your particular sport on performance day, what is directly in your control? And so you list things obviously like your your state of mind, your mindset, um, the amount and quality of training you've done in the leader, all of those kind of things. And then you also list the things that are out of your control on performance day, such as your competitor's performance, the if there's an, an audience, the feelings of the audience, um, you know, all of the different factors. And so make sure that when you're training, you're focusing on those things that are in your controllable list. And if you notice your mind drifting onto any of those uncontrollables, just kind of reminding yourself that's out of my bubble, let it go, <laughs> and bringing your focus back to something controllable. So that's really, really important. Because often people get distracted by the not controllable factors on game day. They, they get psyched out by their competitors, for example. They don't have that power over you. You know, you, you can choose how to respond to anything that's happening around you. Yeah. With practice, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that simple, but, but yeah, you can train yourself to do that. Also making sure that for consistency, you're trying to train as if you were competing. You know, doing the same type of warm-up you would do at a, as you would at a competition. Um, trying to get yourself into the same mindset at the start of a training session as you would at a competition. Obviously, the pressure is going to be different, so it's not going to be identical, but you're just trying to get it as close as possible. Keeping a really organised and planned approach to your training so that you're working consistently, you know what you're working towards each session and you know how you're progressing is really important rather than just having a sort of a scattergun approach, turning up for your sessions but not really going anywhere if that makes sense you need to be able to see yourself gradually progressing in different areas and also making sure that you are dealing with any setbacks so don't let yourself get stuck in that rut and that really negative space learn whatever it was that caused the setback maybe it was something in your control maybe it was something outside but yeah investigate what that was and then do what's in your hands to work past that so see it as a bit of a hurdle but not a mountain, like you can get over it. You just need to <laughs> change something up and then progress over it and, and go. So essentially all, all of this stuff comes down to getting your, your mind out of your body's way. That's what we're aiming for in a general sense. <laughs> so anything that helps you do that. Absolutely huge when it comes to reaching our best performance is obviously getting out of our head and also helping our clients get out of their minds as well. Obviously, on game day, the nerves are huge. There's butterflies. And I think a little bit of anxiety is good because it shows that you care about what you're doing. But when you do reach that brink of it possibly being a bit too much, what are some things we can implement to bring ourselves back from it? Can we use breathing or self-talk? Yeah, so for people, um, again, this is an individual thing. Some people thrive when they're in that really anxious nervous state in their sport others really struggle and it kind of um, derails them so if you're someone that struggles when when you get to a certain point then definitely having some strategies in your back pocket to bring yourself down that work very quickly so breathing is the linchpin because as soon as you can get your breath under control it brings your heart rate down 
your mind slows down and, and starts to think more rationally again about the situation and you just feel generally calmer and more in control. So your breathing is the first thing that goes out the window when you're feeling that anxiety, you're having that fight or flight response and you start to panic. And so we just want to bring ourselves gradually back down from there and breathing is the way to do that. So, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, breathing, that's really simple. And yeah, it is, <laughs> but we don't use it enough. And it's, it's, it's a fail safe. If we're breathing in a more controlled and slower way, our heart rate must follow and then everything else comes down. So that's the absolute number one <laughs> thing to do. Also, if you're someone that responds well to music and uses music a lot, having a playlist that's a little bit more calming that you can just plug your earphones in and just sit with your eyes shut, you know, some nice deep breathing and listening to that playlist can really help because music can be quite effective for a lot of people. It has a very quick effect. So they're probably two of the, the quickest things. Also just doing some um, gentle stretching as well can just help to relax and bring yourself down. But yeah, not thinking about the not controllables and the what ifs. <laughs> you want to keep your focus on yourself and the fact that you've done everything that you needed to do to get to game day and now you just need to narrow your focus onto your keywords, your keywords, the, the really important things for you to remember when you go out yeah. So making sure that your mind doesn't capture everything else <laughs> that's happening around you. Yeah, and I think to specify as well, when we talk about breathing and pulling yourself back down from the brink, it's not those really high, shallow breaths that will help you in that situation. It's the really deep belly breaths. Um, yeah, not the normal breathing we do without thinking. That's right. And also the pattern of your breathing. You're trying to switch on a sympathetic nervous system reaction, which slows everything down basically in your body. So to do that, the best way to, to make that happen quickly is to breathe in for a count of four and then to breathe out for a count of eight. That's going to switch on that particular reaction. And, and within about 30 seconds of doing that, you'll feel a significant difference. It works very, very quickly. Yeah, it's also nice to just ground yourself again through this method of breathing. Even if you're just going through a period of high stress that is non-sport related, uh, they use it in meditation a lot. And the lady I do meditation with always reminds us that we can literally do this anywhere. We can always take a moment to just ground ourselves and slow ourselves down. Yeah, that's it. And it, it, it literally is a moment. Like it, it happens so quickly and it's very, yeah, really, really effective and definitely the best thing you can do. <laughs> no one knows you're doing it. So yeah. You can be around all your competitors and they don't know what you're doing. That's exactly right. You can do it in your car. You can do it anywhere. I love it. Um, because we are speaking about breathing, I just want to touch on arousal levels a little bit before we start wrapping up. If you are someone who is typically close to the brink of being too anxious and then bringing yourself back down, it's not to say that you need to stay there for the duration of your competition or meet day. You may actually need to bring yourself back up again. Yeah, but you don't want to do that until a few seconds before the actual act. <laughs> Yeah, because you'll burn all your energy if you're up in that state for you know an hour before you get out there. You'll have nothing left. Yeah, and would you recommend using breathing and music again to bring yourself back up, or yes. to yeah? Um, there's a lot of different things you can use because obviously, again, it needs to be something that works in the moment. So again, yes, you can adapt your breathing, and instead of having that nice, slow, relaxed breathing, you'd go to the shorter, sharper breaths. So you are trying to breathe from your, your chest, the short, punchy breaths, because that kicks your heart rate up and you feel more alert and ready to go. Also, you probably often notice a lot of people just kind of jumping around on the spot, moving, shaking their limbs out. Same thing, getting the blood moving and telling your body that it's time to go and switching your mind on. 
Um, also having, you know, those keywords we talked about before to focus you, that's going to help sort of um, get you in that right space as well. So any yeah. of those things. Yeah, music, if you have the opportunity, sometimes you have to leave your music behind though a, a fair period before the actual competitive time. So it depends how quickly or how close, um, you know, if you're able to have your headphones in until, you know, one minute before you compete, then definitely that can work. But if it's sort of you've had to leave them behind 15 minutes before, it's probably going to have lost its effect by then. So you've got to yeah. think about what's available to you. I think too, not being super attached to one way or one tool to bring yourself up to that arousal level. Yeah. I competed in December and literally before my last attempt uh, to go for a record total, my headphones just dropped out and died. And I was like oh shit what now and I ended up trying to use my breathing and then having a big whiff of ammonia which I'm absolutely not recommending to everyone but I had to really adapt quickly and get into that zone without the music that I had for the last eight attempts so while it's great to have these things in place remind yourself that it's okay to be adaptable and it's a good thing to be adaptable in situations like that exactly right exactly right so yeah having that's why we sort of talk about having a toolkit with lots of strategies in. And whilst with something like a, a pre-competition routine, you want to try and be consistent and doing the same thing each time. If one element of that isn't workable on a given day for whatever reason, that's okay. You've got the other elements in there that you can still, you know, use. So it's still going to have a good effect. Your body is your instrument. So you can still use your body in the way that it needs to be used yeah. Yeah, to overcome whatever whatever the differences are yeah are there any other really common across the board situations you find in athletes uh I think we probably touched on the most common ones um but look to be honest there's such a wide range um because we're dealing with life in general in combination with sport you know some will come in with a specific performance issue or wanting to work towards a specific um competition Others will come in for a general tune-up and maybe they haven't done any of this kind of stuff before and they want to know what might work for them and what kind of things they should put in their, their training kit. Others might come in with a general kind of life issue and they just happen to be an athlete and, yep. and you know, we need to sort of work on both of those things. So it's a pretty broad area. <laughs> as I say humans are complex so there's there's a whole lot of stuff going on yeah absolutely you've referenced the toolkit a lot and outside of that positive self-talk what are some other tools that you would find in there ah uh, so again it can be a whole range of things a lot of the things we talked about today around um, anxiety and arousal control around performance routines uh, both pre-performance and during performance, depending on the, the sport that you're in. The goal-setting process and making sure that that's done in a way that supports performance. The thought management stuff we've talked about. Relaxation. Also some visualisation and sort of imagery can be really useful in different um, situations as well. Communication skills with, with your team, coaches, your health professionals, etc. Skill acquisition. So how to sort of take take on technique changes and, and build new skills in the most effective way. Yeah, they, I guess they're the, the sort of the cornerstones, uh, essentially, most yeah. of those things. But, you know, coming off of those are a lot of other kind of sub-areas as well. Uh, often, you know, when an athlete first comes in, if they're not 100% sure what might be most helpful for them or if there's not a specific issue, we'll sort of give them a general measure to just assess, okay, what are you doing at the moment? Are you doing any of these things? Have you tried any of these? How did they work for you? 
and then we kind of get a, a bit of a snapshot of where they're at in terms of what mental skills are they using. They might not even be aware that they're using some of these things because yep. um, they haven't kind of given them a name, but they may already be using using certain strategies or they may really not and there might be some great opportunity to start to build some of those things and to, to build that toolkit for them. Yeah, from a strictly coaching standpoint, obviously the language that we use really, really impacts our client. And so we really have to get to know them on that individual level to understand what words and what cues works for them. Have you found uh, situations where someone using negative language really does impact the athlete? Yes, it it can, um, particularly in high-pressure situations. When an athlete is under pressure and they're highly anxious, they can become a bit of a sponge to the environment around them. So, yeah, if you have anyone around you who's in a negative space, you know, not being supportive, saying anything that's going to cue them into things that are out of their control, like, oh, my goodness, look at, look at so-and-so over there. They look so strong today. Yeah. <laughs> you know, things like that that are going to pull the athlete's focus are, are definitely not helpful and, and they're ultra-sensitive at that period in time. So it's, yeah, really important to try to be a solid, supportive influence um, and know what they've worked on and what works for them uh, and how you can support that. Yeah, I've had many times I've been coaching someone and they do their last warm-up and it might look a bit shaky from nerves or a misgroup and then they ask me how it looked and in that moment you really have to take it on board how they're moving but kind of lie to them a little bit in a way because the alternative is really going to have a flow-on effect because they are in that heightened sensitivity. And so as a coach, you really need to make sure that you're using the right language with your clients on an individual level to get the best out of them and just really take the time to understand what they need. That's right. And ask them, you know, on game day, on performance day, what do you need from me? What helps you? Do I, have I done anything that has been unhelpful or that you don't like me doing? And making sure that you have a conversation around that so you have a bit of an action plan for game day. If they say to you, look, I really, I, I really prefer to just, if, if you're not right there when I do my last warm-up, but if you come back over just before I head out, yeah, fine. You know, that, that's their prerogative. You know, it's important to work with them in terms of what, what helps them. If you have that action plan and you go through a few competitions and something's not going that well, you review it and you go, okay, well, what element of this can we tweak? Let's try a few different things, you know, in the comfort of training time and see how it has an effect on how you then train in that session. Yep. And then let's, um, you know, evaluate and maybe move that to the competition training. plan. So it's about that. Uh, you got to tweak it. You can't just set something up and assume it's going to work perfectly. But start with asking them, you know, what they need and then go from there. And this obviously goes both ways. So from an athlete perspective, don't be afraid to ask your coach to help you in that way, in those ways when it comes to performance, because you might respond differently to the next person and it might not be working for you. So asking them to cue in a different way or maybe even not cue you at all. But you have to remember that you're on the same team and communication is really key. You both obviously want the same outcome. So you need to work with each other to get that. That's it. You're both aiming for the same thing. So you want to be on the same page. (laughs) 
I think that just about wraps us up. But if you want to tell people where they can find you, maybe your social media um, and your website. And if anyone is wanting to see Emma in person, do a chat. She is coming to Women's Strength Collective event in October in Canberra. So there are five tickets available. So if you are interested in that, head to our website. But take it away with your information, Emma. Yeah, sure. So uh, I've got a website. My business name is a, a little tricky. <laughs> but, um, it's um, called Vashti Performance Services. So it's V for Victor, A-S-H-T-I. And if you head to vashtiperformances.com.au or Google Vashti Performance Sports Psychology, um, you should find me. And there's a lot of information on the website about the different areas of sports psychology, also how it applies to other areas of life and other occupations, et cetera, general counselling stuff too. And I'm just about to pop a couple of links on there to articles that I've contributed to things, you know, podcasts like today, that kind of stuff, that are also some good resources there. So yeah, that's probably the easiest way to find me. But yeah, feel free to get in touch. There's a contact me page on there if anyone has any questions or anything like that thank you so much emma for joining me and spending your afternoon with me you're welcome thank thank you for having me on and that wraps up episode three with emma hall if you're looking for emma's links just look in the show notes we've linked them all there you can find us on instagram at women's strength collective 2020 you can find me on instagram at beyonce and make sure to tag us if you're listening see you next time